Hey there, thanks for joining us. This podcast is put out into the world by Living Water Community Church, located in Ypsilanti, Michigan. I'm Pastor Clark Cothern. If you'd like to know more about Living Water, or if you'd like to drop us a note, or if you've got a question, or if you'd like to have us pray for you, head on over to lw-cc.org. Now, let's join today's podcast in progress. Because I've read a few things this week about the persecuted church, it seems timely given some of the things that Simon Peter is addressing in his letter that we're studying today. I was kind of shocked to see some of the numbers. Open Doors, which is an agency that helps track the persecuted church and keeps tabs on different people groups around the world, they estimate that over 200 million believers worldwide experience either high, extremely high, or severe persecution worldwide. Over 200 million. Which means that every day somewhere on this planet, people are enduring threats and sometimes violence. Sometimes they face death because of their faith in Jesus Christ. And it's so easy for me to forget that because we're surrounded with such comfort and such relative freedom. I'm afraid that some of those freedoms are going to continue to shrink in America if we look at history as a gauge. I don't want to be a gloom and doom kind of guy, but I see that happening. And yet, right now, we are able to do what we're doing right now. I don't know how long that'll last, but oh, thank God for great wonderful relationships with a school that lets a church come in here and meet the way we do. I praise God for the administration and the people that have rolled out the red carpet to us and who call us good neighbors. We want to continue that, if at all possible. But I want us to see how relevant this letter that was written in 64 AD continues to be today. It was almost as though Simon Peter could appear to head into history at 2019 America and written this letter. That's how applicable it is today. So we're going to look at these things, thinking about persecuted Christians around the world and thinking about where America might be someday. Suffering for his glory, verse 6 verses of 1 Peter 4, and then 7 through 11, serving for his glory. And then we're going to look at a couple of things from the Apostle Paul, who weighs in on his agreement with Simon Peter about a couple of issues, sharing in his glory. And we're going to look briefly about what it means to share in God's glory as well. I'd like to read this out loud to you. If you'd like to follow along in your own translation, you certainly may. I'm reading from the NIV, 1 Peter 4, 1 through 11. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. As a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. They're surprised that you do not join them in their reckless, wild living, and they heap abuse on you. But they will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to human standards in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. 
The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. In looking at these three items together, I'd like to start with a parable about somebody named Jamie who had been to a recruiter who had made it sound pretty awesome that he could join the military. The way the recruiter described it, Jamie thought, I want to be a part of that. I want to be a part of an elite team of people who could defend this country and help maintain justice around the world. And he went to boot camp. And the next thing he knew, there was this angry-looking drill sergeant shouting at him in the face and saying, drop and give me another 50. And Jamie didn't really like what he was enduring at boot camp. And after only a week at boot camp, he left a note on his cot and he walked out of the base and hitchhiked two states home. And the note said, the recruiter said this would be glorious. It's not. This is hard. And that was it for Jamie's military career. You almost get the impression from the tone of Simon Peter's letter that these people who are being persecuted, some who have fled and are feeling like exiles because they're living in places that they hadn't lived before, and they're starting to endure different kinds of threats because of persecution, especially with Nero in power in Rome, that he's saying, hey, wait a minute. You're no longer regular citizens anymore. You're a part of something that's bigger than yourselves, and you need to stand firm. So if it were in today's jargon, Peter might be writing, suck it up, cupcake. Suffering and serving come before glory. I've found that to be true in a lot of things. We're no longer civilians if we're actually serving Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not saying this in a militaristic kind of sense, not in a literal kind of way, not the way some extremists might live as they think that we need to combine a militaristic attitude along with our meekness. Those two don't seem to go hand in hand. And if you really read anything at all about Jesus Christ, especially in his Beatitudes, you'll know that when I'm talking about being part of the Lord's army, we fight with weapons that the world doesn't have anything, any clue about. His weapons are the weapons of returning evil with good rather than evil for evil. His weapons include loving people even though they despise us. So I'm not talking about becoming militaristic, and I don't want anybody to misunderstand when I say that. Sin is no longer your master, he says. Sin is no longer your master. You leave sin even though sin tries not to leave you because of that old nature that still wars within us. But it doesn't have to be. We have a new master now, and it's Jesus Christ. Let this mind be in you, said Paul in Philippians, which was also in Christ Jesus. Well, what mind is that? What attitude is he talking about? 
It was an attitude of service because it said even though he had all the wonderful things of the kingdom in heaven, he gave all that up and came, humbled himself, came to earth, even as the form of a servant, took on the form of a human being and humbled himself even to death on a cross. That's the attitude that we're trying to serve with. You're done with sin, says Peter, even if it thinks it's not done with you. Some misinterpret being done with sin. I actually had one guy tell me this 30 years ago. He said, I don't sin anymore. The Bible tells me so. My Bible tells me that I'm done with sin. I've been covered with Christ's righteousness. And I thought, well, then you probably need to read a couple of verses in Scripture, like 1 John 1.10 and Romans 3.23 that says everyone has sinned. Because 1 John 1.10 says if we claim we've not sinned, we're calling God a liar and showing that his word has no place in our hearts. So I think he's misinterpreting what that means. If we read both Peter and Paul and we see what they're saying about this, it means that we don't have to serve sin as our master any longer. And when we do fall, and we will, then we have somebody to go to because if we'll confess to him our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of those sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So that's kind of a tightrope balance to find the right balance in what we're looking at with this kind of we're not serving sin as a master any longer. We met a young lady named Annie. She married a guy. You have to pray for her. She married a drummer. So her life may not be easy at times, but <laughs> God forgives even drummers, thankfully. Um, his name was Jacques. Uh, he was a really good drummer, by the way. He plays in praise teams now, and Jacques is a really good drummer. He plays for God's glory, but Annie was living a life that sounded like some of those early verses in this passage, uh, debauchery, drunkenness. Anything you could think of that was immediate gratification, that was her master. That was what Annie was after. Things that she thought would bring her life fulfillment of some sort. And she was finally at this party, but it was a weird party because there was no alcohol. And there are a lot of these weird people who call themselves Christians. And one guy who met Annie started listening to some of her story because he was a good enough listener to be able to just say, hey, tell me about yourself. And when he discovered what her life had been like, he said, well, how's that working for you? He wasn't being rude. He was trying to be honest. He said, has any of what you're describing brought you true happiness? And she said, I guess it hasn't. No. He said, well, let me give you a challenge as someone who cares about you. You've tried serving everything else but Jesus Christ. Why don't you try serving Christ for a while? You've got nothing else to lose. And she said, I went home, and I wasn't high, and I wasn't drunk, and so I was able to think clearly, and I could not go to sleep because that guy's words haunted me, and it kept going around and around in my head. You've got nothing else to lose. You've tried everything else, and that hasn't worked for you. Why not just try Christ? And so she finally did. Now, does that mean that suddenly she was covered with a cloak of righteousness, and she walked away from all sin, and she never sinned again? Of course not, based on what I just said three minutes ago. She still had that old nature warring within her, but when she did fall, she fell quickly and got up quickly because she had somebody to help her back up again, and she had a whole body of believers to walk with her through that process as well. Annie is a strong testimony today, talking about somebody who knows what forgiveness and grace look like. She says, I'm a walking testimony. There's no telling where I would be today. I might even be dead had I continued down the path that I was continuing on, 
But fortunately, somebody challenged me and said, you've got nothing else to lose. Why not try following Jesus? She knew, just like Peter talked about, she knew that she would be judged by a new standard. Instead of trying to compare herself with other people to make herself feel better, to say, well, I'm not that bad. We can all do that. But one day, Jesus, who's going to judge the living and the dead, those who have gone before us, he's got a perfect standard. And she knew there's no way she could measure up to that standard, aside from the fact that Jesus has credited his righteousness to her account. Serving for his glory that uh, passage, the middle section of this particular passage, 1 Peter 4, 7 through 11, Peter is starting to challenge these people to continue to serve one another and to serve those around them because he knows that it's easy for us to get myopic, to look at our circumstances and to forget that, oh yeah, we have a purpose. We're supposed to continue to serve one another. Knowing the ultimate outcome adds perspective and subtracts fear. We've looked ahead at the end of the story and we know who wins. I've uh, oversimplified my four-word summary of the book of Revelation, and I've told this to you before. God wins. Be ready. That's way oversimplified, but it's true, isn't it? God wins. We've looked ahead. We know what the outcome is going to be, so that ought to help give us some perspective to let us know that what we're going through right now, whatever that difficulty might be, it's temporary. And it ought to give us some confidence because it takes away our fear of what the future holds. And that's what Peter was saying to these people. Even though you're suffering, even though you're being persecuted right now, this is temporary. The end of all things is near, he says. Now, for those that think that's a doom and gloom statement, it's not. Peter intended this to be an encouragement to them. He's saying, you've got something so much better to look forward to. And by the way, I truly believe that we really are still in the last days. I think we have been. For quite a while. I don't know when that's going to be, but even so, Lord Jesus comes. Sometimes we look at the news and I sound like my father who used to say, even so, Lord Jesus come. And I used to think, oh, that's an old man speaking. All right. <laughs> Talking about perspective, five things more deadly than sharks. Remember when Jaws came out in 1975, big hit? Shortly after that, some of you may not Yes. Thank you, brother. <laughs> I was out in California because I was getting ready to go on tour with Continental Singers Group. And uh, we went swimming one afternoon. We had a day off after all of our rehearsals. And I went swimming in the Pacific Ocean. And do you know what my imagination was doing? But, uh, but, uh, <laughs> you're exactly right, Joaquin. That's what was going through my head. And I was replaying scenes from that movie. And I was thinking, I don't know that I like this very well. It sure is cool that I'm swimming in the Pacific Ocean. But, uh, but, uh, I, know, I know that you're wondering, did you get eaten by a shark? <laughs> no. But it would have been helpful for me to have some perspective and to know that there are five things that are more deadly than sharks every year. This is taken from a 2014 study that was done about things that would cause people's deaths. Tripping or slipping. 170 people in that year died from tripping or slipping. Beware of banana peels, everybody. <laughs> Eating and choking. Sounds simple. 60 people passed away because of that hot dog. Falling out of bed. Now, I know that we laugh, but the older I get, it's hard to get out of bed someday. And 
43 people apparently found it really difficult because they died from falling out of bed in 2014. Hot weather. You might not have to worry about that starting about this time forward in Michigan. You can celebrate. We're going into cold weather. Chances are we're not going to die from hot weather in the next three months. 35 people did succumb to hot weather and dehydration or whatever they died from in that case. And then this one. I was amazed by this with taking a bath. Kids, this is not an excuse. <laughs> you should be clean. Good grooming is important. But 11 people drowned in their own bathtubs because they slipped and bumped their heads. So, look, compared to this list, how many people died from being chewed on by a shark in that year? Just five. I was at greater risk in my car on the freeway going to California from Arizona than I was swimming in the Pacific Ocean. I wish I had known that. I would have been frolicking in those waves. But that's perspective. Now, I'm going to flip that and say that there's some perspective that Simon Peter is trying to give us, and then Paul, this wonderful apostle who agrees with Peter on these same things, gives us some sort of perspective, because he's talking about something that I had to get my arms around it, my brain around it, this weight of glory. I've heard that spoken about. I know a couple of songs, old hymns that talk about the weight of glory. Well, how much does glory weigh? That's a very nebulous concept. So I had to figure out what he was talking about relating to that. He's saying basically that if you're going to have some sort of a scales, that whatever we're going through that's difficult is on one side of that scale. And we've got all kinds of difficulties, and especially those people Peter was writing to. Man, they were encouraged by Peter to say, don't give up because I know you're under this great weight of oppression and persecution. So that's weighty. And Paul is basically saying, it's a strange metaphor, but I like it, that that weight of glory is going to outweigh everything that's over on the other side of that. That God's glory is going to be so wonderful that everything else will just go away. It will diminish until we won't even see it. We won't even think about it any longer. There's something about this beauty of glory that John Piper talks about and writes about it a lot. I've tried to read a little bit about it this week because it's so nebulous and hard to get a, a grip on about what these guys are talking about and why the end coming is such a good thing for believers. Did you know that a snap of a finger like that takes one-tenth of a second? If you're a slowpoke, they said it could be one-twentieth. No, that's the other way around. One-twentieth is quicker, isn't it? So I guess I'm a slowpoke if it's one-tenth. That's one-tenth of a second compared with eternity. That's what this light and momentary affliction is like that we might be going through that Paul talks about. He says these are momentary light afflictions. Now Paul, who had been ship shipwrecked, beaten, almost stoned to death, had to be shuttled out over the, the wall one time, all these things that happened to him, snake bitten. I mean, Paul had been through a thing or two. So for him to say these are light and momentary afflictions, that's perspective as well, because he was a guy who had suffered. And yet he says, no, that's light and momentary. Compared with the surpassing greatness, this weight of glory that we have awaiting us, all these things are going to disappear because we're going to be so focused on that which has so much glory. Eternity is sharing in God's glory. Since we know what's in store, we can serve for his glory. That's Peter's point in his letter. And I'm proud of you all because you're serving so well. So many of you are serving. And I invite you to stay afterwards and find out how we're serving so that we can 
be even more proud of ourselves. Not in a prideful kind of way. Not in a pat ourselves on the back kind of way. But just to be encouraged that other people are doing good work for the kingdom's sake. And then he says, just some practical advice. Since we're in the army, you're no longer civilians anymore. Christ is your master. Sin's not your master. Stay alert. Joy and I have watched a few of these. uh, We probably shouldn't have, but we watched some of these disaster shows about trying to find out why that plane went down. We watched those just before we went to Scotland. (laughs) I watch Jaws. I swim in the ocean. (laughs) We watch disaster shows about plane wrecks. We fly to Scotland. But fortunately, we survived. But he says, stay alert at your post. One of those things showed that there was an air traffic controller who fell asleep at his console. Not recommended. Peter says, stay alert. Don't succumb to boredom. Make sure that you understand that the stakes are really high, which is why we have to maintain these spiritual disciplines and maintain love for one another and serving one another, gathering together in praise with God's glory with one another. All these things that we do corporately as a body of Christ, these are important because it keeps us alert so we're able to pray. And then he says, love one another with a Christ-like love. And he says something that some people have misused a bit when they said that love covers a multitude of sins, that doesn't mean we wallpaper over them and pretend like they don't exist. Let me give you an example from Annie, that young lady that I told you about. She understood from that guy who told her, Annie, what you've done has not resulted in anything positive in your life. That's truth. He wasn't unloving in the way he said that to her. He was being honest and compassionate, but he said, you've tried that. It hasn't worked for you. Is that fair? And she would say, yeah, that's fair. See, loving means that you can tell the truth and be compassionate about it. And when it covers this multitude of sins, it's covering like we used to do with aloe vera plant in Phoenix when we'd stay out in the sun too long and get a sunburn. You'd rub that aloe vera, cut the cactus in half and squeeze out the juice and rub it on there. It covers over like a balm, like a salve, like a healing something or other. And so when we're covering over sins, we're not pretending that they don't exist. We're healing them. And when Peter says love is a healing factor, he's right. When we love each other through the ups and downs and the bumps and the bruises and the hurt feelings that can happen because we're human, we can heal one another by being honest and loving at the same time. And then he says, be hospitable. Like we heard for that uh, Irish guy that would say, get your feet under somebody else's table. And Joy and I are really thrilled because we've gotten our feet under several of y'all's table lately, and we enjoyed it. And some of you have had your feet under our table. I loved it. Except some of the ladies laughed a little too hard last night. We had a game night, and I was trying to get some work done. So a little less noise there, a little less noise. They can't promise anything. It was the right kind of laughter, actually. I enjoyed it. It was good. Serve one another, he says, verses 10 and 11. I want you to... Visit these tables today after this service. Pick up your card so you can get them initialed and find out the many ways that we're serving. Some of you might be surprised. Some of you may have been attending this church for a long time and you weren't even aware of some of the things that go on because of serving kind of people. And then finally, sharing his glory. Let me wrap up because we're going to go a little bit long today, so I'm going to be quick. Now, if, and he means since, based on the context, since we are children of his, then we are heirs, heirs with God, co-heirs with Christ. We're going to inherit all this stuff that he has stored up in heaven for us, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. Now, that sounds real churchy. 
Yes, I'm going to share in God's glory. Amen? And I'm going, I don't know what that is. Beauty is a hard word to describe, but let me try. A sunset on a mountain peak where there's no man-made anything around to spoil it. Perfectly formed little tiny fingers on a newborn baby. Your six-year-old grandson named Reed, who sits next to his peepaw and looks up at him and says, peepaw plus Reed equals love. I got you with that one. Because <laughs> he got me with that one. He literally said that just this last week. That's beauty. What is it about things that are so beautiful that enrapture us, that cause us to forget about everything else? It's perfection. There's nothing to mar the perfection. If we look at a great sculpture, there's no imperfection. And so we're drawn to that. We can't stop looking at it because it's so beautiful. It arrests us in the best possible way. Now, if you think about that in character form, there is nothing in God that's imperfect. He is holy. Therefore, there's beauty in His holiness. That's the concept, I think, that is so hard for us to grasp and that I want us to try to seek because the more we get after that beauty of holiness concept, the more we understand when we get into God's presence, it's going to arrest everything in us for the best possible way. There will be no human element, no sin to mar the picture. It'll be so arresting that we will just be drawn into all of that beauty. I'm looking forward to that. Joy and I got to walk around in some spectacular scenery way up at the northern part of the Isle of Skye where man hasn't touched it yet. We have a big picture that I got blown up and it's on one of our uh, tables back home because the colors are just out of this world. And that's just a hint. Everything that I've talked about in trying to describe beauty is just a little tiny hint. It's like God says, okay, I'm going to dangle the carrot for you. I'm going to give you a tiny glimpse. And if you see something that's truly beautiful, guess what? I'm the one who's behind that. And he says, and that's just so that you can know that it's a, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good because there's going to be so much of that in abundance when you finally get to your inheritance. And when finally the end is done... And this earth is fading. We're going to look and see him. And know that he loves us. That's beautiful. And we can't wait. Glory is the beauty of God's holiness. And there's nothing imperfect in God. Let me wrap up with this. One of our friends in Scotland, John Dempster. I'd mentioned him before because he writes a weekly column in a regional paper in Inverness. And he wrote a column and emailed it to me. I just got it two days ago. Hector Morrison is the principal of a theological college in Inverness. And Hector had gone on what we would call probably a 5K run. I don't know the distance they were going, but it was called a park run, run in the park. And on the Ness Islands, which is a couple of foot bridges over onto some tiny islands in the middle of the River Ness, six miles away from Loch Ness where Nessie's hanging out, uh, Joy and I were there. We, we've seen it. It's a gorgeous area. And he said he was on his way back, heading for home after this fun run, and his heart stopped. And yet four weeks later, this happened just on uh, September 21st. Four weeks later, he's sitting in his living room with John Dempster there listening to his story. And he said, but i got to tell you something. There's a little bit of suffering going on there. 
But I saw God's hand at work. Let me tell you why. There was a nurse visiting all the way from California, USA. She happened to be there at that moment. There was anesthesiologist, a doctor who happened to be there right when I dropped to the ground. There was a businessman who knew CPR. There was a shinty player that's like field hockey. And she was there and she knew CPR. And the four of those people recognized this guy is gravely ill. In fact, he may already be gone, but we're going to keep the CPR going until the paramedics get here. And so they kept those compressions going. And when the paramedics got there, they shocked his heart back to life again, got him into the hospital, and there he is four weeks later talking to John, telling him the story. He said a lot of people would look at those four people and say, well, that was really a nice coincidence. Or that was really lucky that they happened to be there at that moment. Check this out, though. He said as they were doing that, after they had shocked his heart back to life again, they were just about ready to give him an anticoagulant. And he started coughing, and up came some blood. And he said, somebody there recognized, oh, there's something else happening there, discovered that he had some bleeding ulcers, gastric ulcers. So that anticoagulant would probably not have been the right approach and may have, in fact, been his demise. He said, how lucky was that, some people might say. He said, but those of us who are seeking after the beauty of God's holiness would say, that was the providential hand of God. It was a beautiful thing to behold. And he said, and now I'm gazing across the room at this woman because she's my wife and not my widow. And John looked over, and she was crying, and she just looked over at him to say, yeah, I've got a husband because of the providential hand of God. That's beauty. God wants to pour out his beauty of holiness on everybody that would turn to him. I want them to share in that beauty. Let's share his glory every time we get a chance. Let's pray. Father, you're too vast for us to really comprehend. And so I'm grateful for people like Simon Peter and the Apostle Paul who've written some things down to help us try to get even a sneak peek at the greatness and the glory and the beauty, things that are so difficult to grasp, and yet we long for them. And I pray that we will, that you'll ignite that longing in our soul for more of that eternal beauty because that's what we have waiting for us as a part of our inheritance. May we share God's glory with everybody we get to come in contact with while we have the opportunity. I pray in Jesus' name.